to the podcast from the Sunday night service at New Life Church. The Sunday night service reflects a desire to be rooted in the historic expressions of faith while engaging God with our whole being in the world today. For more information on New Life Church, you can visit our website at newlifechurch.org. Well, we're starting a new series tonight called Sticks and Stones, and um, I'm not 100% sure how long we're going to go on on the series, but it's all about relationships and our relationships with one another. I don't read or don't hear relationships as marriage or dating relationships. I mean as in church relationships. And um, I'm one of those church kids, you know. Uh, I've been in church really as long as I can remember. I grew up in Malaysia, and the, the very first church my family was part of was an Anglican church. Um, and so the, the using of the Book of Common Prayer and all that here, um, in some ways maybe touches some sort of deep subconscious inner part. I don't know. I don't really remember it. I did a lot of coloring in church uh, at that age, you know. Uh, so I, I don't know. Um, but I was, I, I was in church at a very early age. And then I remember when I was about, ooh, probably seven or so, we, we switched and we went to, we started going to um, a quote-unquote, it was called a full gospel church. And uh, in Malaysia, I think it, those churches sprang up, I think, out of the ministry of, like, the full gospel businessmen stuff, if some of you are familiar with that. And so, a wonderful thing. And then when my parents left, uh, or uh, when we all left Malaysia, and my parents went to Bible school in Portland, Oregon. We lived there for three years, and we were part of a non-denominational, you know, charismatic, uh, you know, church and all that. Moved back to Malaysia. And then right as I was coming out to go to college, my parents were starting uh, a, a new church kind of, an hour outside of the capital city and all of that. But I, I've, I've been in church for a long time, and, I, and I've been a pastor's kid for a, a little while. And then now, it, this summer marks 10 years of being uh, in local church ministry as a, as a pastor. And uh, I will say, I understand it when people say that they don't like church. I will say that I really understand it when people say, well, I just, I can't stand church, and I like Jesus, and I like the Gospels, and I like what I hear of Jesus, the Jesus in the Gospels, and this sort of, uh, you know, peace-loving Galilean country peasant, you know, this Je- that Jesus, I love that Jesus. I'm just not a fan of the church, and the church is this, and the church is that, and the church is this. I have discovered, though, the main problem with church. The main problem with church is that it involves people. <laughs> and, and, and really, the main problem with those people is that they're nothing like you, or, or in my case, they're nothing like me. And really, all of this would be solved if I could just get everybody to be the way I want them to be. Then I would really love church. Then I would just really, really like church. If I could get people to just behave this way, this way, and that, that would just make it wonderful. But this whole thing of, of belonging or individualism, or if you, if you had some sort of a continuum, you know, and you say, well, on one side is our individualism and our desire to sort of do our own thing, and on the other side you have this this desire, maybe, at least, for belonging and for community and all of those buzzwords, you know. Uh, that's become kind of a nice, clever word to say, you know, community, you know. Uh, there was a show that, that, that came on NBC, I think, a year ago, where the guy says to his study group, you know, I pronounce you a community, you know. And uh, as if that was the magical word, just, just saying it means that you are a community. Um, but it, it's an interesting thing, and I'm not, I'm not much, you know, I'm not a sociologist at all. I'm not really, you know, I don't read too much of, of that stuff. But there are people who write and talk about 
oh, look at our society and look at the fragmentation of our society and look at how, you know, because of cars and traveling and airplane and all this stuff, that, that really there's kind of been this the mobilization, the, the mobility of our, uh, uh, that, that's available to us has kind of made us sort of break apart. I mean, my wife and I, we live a long way away from our families or from where we grew up. My wife lives uh, or grew up in Iowa, and that's a, a long way away. I, I told you where I grew up. That's even farther away. You know, and so there's this mobility that's a wonderful thing that allows us to go and pursue other jobs and do this and do that. But there's this unintended consequence that comes with it, and that is that all of a sudden the most important person in every decision-making process is you. And as long as it's best for you, you can make those decisions. And, and we, we no longer are thinking through the lens of, well, what's good for this community? And what's good, just, what's good for each other? And even when you think about it uh, on a national scale, there's some of that where it's like, well, I just want to do what's good for me. And we could say, well, look, isn't the problem with this corporation or that corporation, isn't the problem really that everybody's just selfish and greedy? Well, you could point out there, but the truth is we could all point in here. And we could all say, look, all of us struggle with this. All of us at the core of it, if, if we're honest, the thing that drives us really is the stuff that we want and, and the life that I want to live. And I'll get along with you as long as you agree with me. And as long as you share my goals for myself, then we can be friends. And really, uh, so many of our relationships are not so much relationships as they are um, strategic partnerships. And they're not so much genuine relationships where we let ourselves be known and loved, but so many of our relationships are about leverage. And, well, if I could just get to know this person, that could lead to this job, and that could lead to this opportunity, and maybe that would lead to some marketing, and, that, you know, and we're just leveraging. And I, there's nothing wrong with that necessarily in and of itself. But I wonder if somewhere along the way we've kind of lost the ability to really, truly connect to let ourselves be loved, and to learn to love someone else. If we haven't just become people that are looking to always improve ourselves and work on ourselves. Uh, I, 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 honestly, that, the heart of that video thing about the Discovery 301 being about discovering your gifts for self-improvement, that's misrepresentative. Because nowhere in the Scripture are we to discover spiritual gifts for our own benefit. And this is not about putting another feather in my cap. Oh, look, I've developed this gift now. Look at the strength I've discovered about myself and self-fulfillment. As if the Christian life was about private, personal growth. It's not. You will experience some of it. You'll actually hopefully experience lots of it. But the way that we experience that growth, paradoxically, doesn't come by focusing on me and my strengths and my special talents and my little itty-bitty gifts, and my secret little purpose. Those are all wonderful, but that's not how we really grow. This, the reaction to kind of the, 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 you know, maybe the individualization or the, the fragmenting of society and all that, is sometimes you see it in church where people want kind of um, hyper-community, and you may, you know, there's, there's some little, there's some movements and things of people who are like, man, let's just go back to the commune thing, and we'll all plant gardens together, and we'll do this, and okay, that's fine, that's wonderful, great, you know, I, I can't really, that, that sort of lifestyle's not feasible for me right now, but I, I could see, you know, you're doing that, you know, um, and, and then, and then maybe not hyper-community, but then there's also controlled community. A controlled community in the church version of it is the Man, I don't believe in church anymore, and church is kind of this, and church is kind of that. And let's just get together with a few of our friends and have a barbecue on Sunday, and let's just, that's church, man. And we've heard 
people say things like this, right? I mean, it's just about the relationships, and so let's just hang out together and all this stuff. But it's controlled community because you're choosing who's coming. Right? I mean, if I showed up, you'd be like, uh... It's controlled. It's comfortable because you can say, well, it's me and my friends, and you can say we're a church, and you can say that we're this and we're that, but are you really church if you're not being forced to love someone you wouldn't choose to love? Are you really learning to be in community if you're not forced to rub shoulders with people that you don't really care for, that you wouldn't choose to be around? <laughs> Honestly, this is why church is part of our growing up. Because God has placed us in these families and, and, it, and the way that we interact with one another is how we grow up. Uh, oddly enough, we're going to start the series in our favorite book, Ephesians. And in Ephesians 4, I don't know if you're tired of me talking about Ephesians. I'm, I certainly am not. I'm just getting even more energized about Ephesians uh, in fact, you know, tomorrow night I leave for this conference in Malaysia, and I'll arri- I leave Monday night, I'll arrive on Wednesday, and uh, go figure, international dateline and 25 hours of traveling. Um, and I arrive on Wednesday afternoon, I'll do a sound check Wednesday night, and then the conference begins Thursday morning with uh, guess who trying to give a coherent talk, me. So you can be sure some of my talks may or may not be from Ephesians, um, just, you know, because it's already prepared. But Ephesians 4, <laughs> Ephesians 4, verse 1 through 3. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. You remember when we talked about this verse that word for worthy that Paul says in Ephesians 4.1, you know, walk worthy of your calling or live in a way that's worthy of your, live a life worthy of your calling. I think it's the King James that says walk worthy of your calling. That word worthy, you remember a few weeks ago we talked about this, that word worthy is the word axios, which means, uh, has this image to it of a balancing scale. When you can get one thing on the left side to be equal weight to the thing on the right side, that, those two things are then worthy of each other because they're of equal weight. It's like going to the doctor's office and you stand on the scale and, oh, sorry, that's bad memories, isn't it? And then you, you know, slide the metal bar and you're like, 10, 20, let's add another 20. And you're like, really? Anyway, and then it balances, okay? So the weight is equal, it's worthy to your weight. That's this idea. Paul is saying that your calling is heavy. Your calling is weighty. And the calling that he's talking about here is not... Uh, itty-bitty, individual, personal, customized calling. I'm called to be this, and I'm called to be that. No, he's talking about our collective calling as followers of Christ. He's talking about all of us together as Christians, as disciples, as ones who are following the risen Lord. And he's saying, look, your calling in Christ is heavy. Look at what you're part of. Look at what you got in on. This, this is heavy. Now let, live a life that's worthy of it. Live a life, or rather, live a life that's of equal weight. Live a life that is of equal weight. But here's what we like to run off and do. Is we say, okay, great, you know, Ephesians 1 through 3 was all about our calling and life in Christ and grace and peace and all this stuff. And 4, 5, and 6 is about how we're supposed to be living. And most of us will read this in kind of our private, quiet, devotional time, which is wonderful. But we'll read it and then we'll say, okay, great. How can I go on? living a life that's worthy of my calling. 
And we start to say, well, maybe I'll work on this. Maybe I'll work on that. Maybe, you know. But here's the, th- the thing, the implied stuff in the verses that follow. Because all the verses that follow, not only Ephesians 4, 2, and 3, but all the verses that follow in chapter 5 and chapter 6, Paul makes it strikingly clear that in order to let your living be of equal weight to your calling, you've got to figure out how to live with one another. You've got to figure out how to be in relationship with one another. And he begins to talk about family relationships and work relationships and all this stuff. And you're thinking, Paul, I just want to grow up in Christ. And he's saying, yeah, but in order to grow up, you've got to deal with people. (laughs) And you've got to deal with relationships. It makes me think, I was thinking this morning of the the story that Jesus told of the man who was, um, uh, uh, the the fig tree, I think it was, that, that wasn't, uh, bearing fruit, and, the, and the, the guy says, hey, look, let's just cut it down. And the gardener says, look, give it one more year. Let's give it one more year and see if it bears fruit. But in that one more year, let's surround it with manure. And I wonder if some of us have said, Lord, I just really want to grow up in you, and I just really want to become a mature believer, and I don't want to visit this issue over and over again, and Lord, please rescue me and deliver me and work on this in my life. And he says, okay, here's some manure in the form of your relationship with this person. Here's, you know, here's a person that enters your life all of a sudden. You're like, oh, the situations at my work are just really, <laughs> you know, really full of manure. So manure is, of course, fertilizer, the oldest, most natural form of fertilizer. Part of how we grow up in Christ requires that we learn to deal with the manure of relationships. Let's take these phrases bit by bit. Be completely humble, he says in verse 2, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Let's take that first phrase, be completely humble and gentle. I love that. Be completely humble and gentle. That word for humble literally means a smallness, a kind of a, a, a view of yourself as Small, as little, a little-mindedness, a lowliness of mind. It's the same phrase that Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty-eight when he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You may know the other versions that say, For I am lowly, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When you hear that, to be completely humble, to have the kind of view of yourself that is low and smaller, I don't mean by that to have a low self-esteem. I don't mean by that to, to have this, this, this beat-yourself-up kind of thing. And I think because we've had so many struggles with that that we've kind of overcompensated maybe, and so we have this other side of the message that's like, no, you're wonderful, and just be your true you, and then it'll all be good, you know? Well, neither are quite right. We're not supposed to have this sort of I'm just wretched sort of thing. You're still made in the image of God. You're still loved by God. But there is this humility of mind, the the ability to say, let me lower my estimation of myself. Let me sort of take the low road. But you know, the funny thing about humility is I couldn't say to you, all right, everybody, you ready to be humble? On the count of three, be humble. One, 
two, three. You know, what is that? You can't do that. The only, uh, the only way you can actually grow in humility and learn to be completely humble is by discerning your reactions to other people. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, a friend of mine who's um, in his mid-50s maybe, kind of a, a ministry, he's not on staff, but kind of a ministry coach. Uh, to some degree, we meet every couple months or so, and we'll talk, and we'll, occasionally we'll email back and forth about stuff. And He emailed me this article in a very prominent Christian magazine, and it was sort of poking, the article was sort of poking fun at, at a particular kind of service or person or whatever, a preacher or whatever, and, and he highlighted a few portions of the article for me and was, was saying, hey, look, I'm not saying this for you to get upset, but isn't this kind of interesting? And I'll tell you, to be honest, you know what my first response was? I was offended. I was like, who wrote that article? They, they've never, they don't know me. Like, just because I have some similarities to the caricature that they're painting, that's a caricature. That's not real, you know? And I found myself writing back the email saying, yeah, thanks for the article, but you know, I don't really do that. And we're not really, and by the end of the email, because I'm sort of getting convicted as I'm writing it, I say to him, you know, maybe I'm being defensive here because, um, because maybe it, it fits, or maybe I'm being defensive here because I, I, I have this, feel this need to, to sort of be right, or, you know, and uh, you know what, let me think about this article more, you know? And it's just funny because, the things that, the, the way you discover if you're completely humble or not is not by a humility test. The way that you discover it is when someone offends your pride. It's when someone comes up against your pride and, and insinuates something about your parenting skills or lack thereof, you know? And you're like, well, what are you saying? Like, no, I, I, I'm a good mom. Like, I'm, no, I, know, I, don't, I don't work to, you know, whatever. And whatever the issue is, what, there's usually something that kind of rises up in us. And whether or not that issue is right or wrong, or whether or not that, that, that accusation about you, whether the shoe fits or not, the response it triggers in us is usually a way to sort of say, you know what, <sighs> maybe this is an occasion to learn some humility. Maybe this is an occasion to, to embrace humility. Because the trouble with our weaknesses and our blind spots is, we don't see them. We don't like to have things uh, implied that, that, that they're there. And for someone to sort of say, hey, man, you, you know, you're this or that, or how come, you know. And I've discovered, maybe you, this isn't true for you, but I've discovered sometimes the things in others that I'm most irritated in, or irritated about, are the things that are actually just like me. And maybe you're not like that, but I, you know, I've certainly, I was talking to a friend recently, and they were saying, you know, what about so-and-so? And I was about to say, well, I just don't know, and just he is kind of, and then I caught myself and I said, well, he's kind of like me, and so there's things about him that are just like my weaknesses, and, and maybe that's why I'm irritated by it, you know, but I wonder if we can start to be more attentive to that. I wonder if there are those moments when you feel the little irritations or the little aggravations to say, to stop, just pause for a moment and say, Holy Spirit, why am I reacting so strongly? Why am I getting so annoyed by that? Like, why? Why did that bother me? Was it, you know, and, and, and usually it's this mixed bag where there's something understandable about what's annoying you, but it's always tainted. Usually, usually it's tainted a little bit by the pride that it's hitting in us, by the ego that it's offending in us. And so to be willing to say, okay, uh, Lord, what, what is that? What, what is it about that person that's kind of pushing that button? Be patient 
bearing with one another in love. That word patient literally means long-suffering. Long-suffering, forbearance, to be patient, bearing with one another in love. It's the same word that Jesus said in front of the crowd where he says, oh, how long must I be with you? So he himself had people that tested his patience that he had to bear with, be patient with. You know what I wonder is, is there anyone in your life that you really have to bear with? <laughs> you know? And, and most of you are like, don't look at your spouse, don't look at your spouse, cause I, you know. or don't look at family members because we didn't choose family members, you know. But I think this is part of our fantasy ideal about church is I'm, we're going to find this church and we're going to find this group of friends that I don't have to bear with them and I don't have to be patient with them. It's just going to be awesome. Like I'm going to get there and we're just going to be like, you know, really? And here's Paul saying to the Ephesian church, be patient, bear with one another, learn to, to put up with it. I think a, a big part of how we do this, how, how, how do we what, what enables us, you know, how does the Holy Spirit work in us to really be able to be patient, to bear with someone? I think part of it is to recognize that you are not in charge of their spiritual progress. Is that relieving to some of you? To say, you know what, I am not in charge of their spiritual process of maturity. I'm not the one. I'm not the one they have to answer to, and I'm not... So I'm not the Lord, and I'm also not the Spirit who's supposed to work in them and make that happen. A lot of what's, why it's difficult to be patient and to bear with someone is because we want them to be where we want them to be. Usually it's where we are. And it's like, hey man, I'm over here, and why can't you get it? And we try to bully and push and manipulate and control, and we you know, throw Bible darts at them and all this stuff just to try to get them to come to this place. One of the joys of parenting <laughs> is realizing that your kids go through a lot of different phases. And I, our oldest is only five and a half, so it's not like we've been through that many phases. And all the parents with older kids are like, just you wait. You know, I know, I know, it's coming. But you, 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 you start to sort of say, well, I, I not, I'm not really sure what's going on here. And I'm going to try to be a good parent and try to interact with them and, all, you know, and, and coach and... and and, and there's some balance between teaching authority and yet teaching them to own their own decisions and consequences. And, all, you know, and you're, you're figuring that out as they grow. But, but what I've realized is you can't fault a two-year-old for being a two-year-old. So, well, that's where they are. And I, if you had a 12-year-old that was still acting like that, that'd be difficult. <laughs> you know, and we'd have to figure out what to do. But I wonder how many of us in church were, were, oh man, I'm just so frustrated at so-and-so and I just don't like how she did this and she said that. And all of a sudden you say, you know what? I don't really know where they are in their walk with the Lord, but I'm not the one responsible for moving them along this path. But they, they are where they are. And Lord, would you work with them? Holy Spirit, would you work in, in their heart? And, and, and hey, who knows if I'm on, my, on the right growth track or whatever. You know what I mean? I mean, I think this is what's difficult about the spiritual life is there's no standardized assessment tool here, you know? Uh, we can't all of a sudden check in and say, well, this year I've grown the average amount of spiritual growth, you know? What? <laughs> we don't know. 
And you, become to, you come to realize that you're not in charge of the process or the progress. Not even of yourself. I'm not in charge of the process or the progress. But I am responsible for my response to the Lord and to others who are on the journey. And to be able to say, okay, well, um, I'm going to be patient. I'm going to bear with them. You know, um, I don't really know their story. And that phrase alone, I don't know their story. That's huge, yeah? You, you don't. There are very few people that we can say, no, I, I really know their story. And I, I, I think there's some unhealthy cycles here. And I just want to talk to them about That's great. That's good to do. There should be that, that challenging and that ironing, sharpening iron and all that stuff. But a lot of the times, nine times out of, the, out of ten, the people that we're sort of, don't want to be patient with, don't want to bear with, are people that we, we don't really know their journey or their story. But to be able to say that the Lord does, and to be able to trust that the same God that you serve is the God that they serve. Later on in this very chapter of Ephesians, Paul talks about how we have one Lord, one Father, one Spirit, one ba- all this stuff, a lot of the stuff that we've said in the creed tonight. And what is the point of saying all that? It's to say that we have the same God who is responsible. The same God that's working out in Leonard is working out in me. The same Lord that I have to answer to, the same Holy Spirit that he has, is working in him, it's the same one. And so there's, there's confidence in that. And I'm trying to teach my kids that currently. Uh, when, when Sophia and Nora go through disputes, I'm trying to say, come to mom and dad and let us, tell us about what's happening here. Instead of taking justice in your own hands. Whack! You know, kick! No, my, my, mine don't do that. Just as a hypothetical <laughs> example. Um, but to... But that's us, isn't it, right? It's like you see someone else who's not growing, or you see someone else who's this or that, and you're like, what's our natural response? Well, I just want, I'm going to bully them into it. I'm going to give them a long lecture. I'm going to manipulate them. I'm going to, like, take this away and this way, and, and all this bullying and manipulation, all this stuff, it's all an attempt to control somebody else to get them to be the way you want them to be. And, and part of this is saying, okay, God, I'm going to say what I can say when I see it and what they've given me permission to say. I will, and I trust that we've got the same Lord, the same Spirit, and I can be patient, bearing with one another. This last phrase in verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. I love this phrase, and I love the, the word every effort. Ephesians 4, 32, uh, sorry, yeah, 32 through chapter 5, verse 2. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is coming at the end of the same chapter that we, the beginning of which we read tonight as our text. Why is Paul saying this? As dearly loved children of God, imitate Christ, lay down your life for one another and all this stuff. Do you think that there's a way of looking at the cross of saying that this, this love, this sacrifice that Christ himself made required the laying down of his life? And so because of that, the every effort that we're supposed to make to keep unity 
may also require the laying down of your life. Is that fair to say? Yes. That this work of unity, this work of, of working through our relationships and keeping peace will require effort. I do, th- I, I do think it's interesting because we don't like that word, effort. And most of us, if you've grown up in a, in a church that sort of pounded into your head, hey man, we're not, we're not about works, we're not about legalism, we're not, you know, all this stuff, that you've maybe grown up thinking that everything's just going to be easy. That, you know, like you've said yes to Jesus, you said a prayer, and voila, you know, you're going to be awesome. All your problems are gone. There's no journey, there's no, you know, there's no counseling necessary. You're just going to sort of become different. Wow, look at me, I'm transformed. You know. Okay? Or not. Peter, in his letter, says this phrase a number of times, make every effort. But what we recognize here is that this is a spirit-filled, grace-empowered effort. This is not solely human effort. This is not just you on your own doing it. But neither is it God magically waving a wand over you. But it's the Holy Spirit filling us, empowering us, enabling us, grace driving us, so that now we can make every effort. I think part of our problem with this stuff is we tend to think that if something is God's role, then it cannot involve us at all. When very often the case is, on everything that God is doing, He always invites us in. On everything God is doing, he always invites our participation. So even God's work of sanctification in your life, Greg, and in my life is is him saying, I'm doing this in you, but would you come and participate with me in this? Would you come and make every effort with this? It also tells me that you're probably never going to walk into a small group. You know, if you do try to find a group, you're probably never going to walk into a small group that where it just feels natural right away. Man, I just, I, I like looked online and like found this small group and I showed up Wednesday night at 7 o'clock and it was awesome. Like we're best friends. I mean, he's going to be like in my wedding next year, you know. No, that's probably not going to happen, you know. It's going to require some effort. You're going to work at this. Well, I don't want to work at this. Well, part of growing up. It's part of growing up. Part of growing up in Christ means embracing that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can make every effort to keep the unity, to, to work hard to preserve this bond of peace, to, to work at it. And are there going to be times when you work hard for unity, you work to mend a relationship, and you don't get back what you were hoping for? Yeah. Next week, we'll talk all about that, forgiveness and, and what that means. And is forgiveness the same as trust? And, 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 and does forgiving someone mean that you're automatically going to be best friends again? We're going to explore that together. Because sometimes you'll make every effort, but the other person may not. Well, as much as it has to do with you, Paul says in another letter, live at peace with all men. Do, your, do everything that you, that, that's in your power to do. I do think when we say the word unity, we have a couple of cheap parodies of it that, that aren't really true unity. So I want to sort of dispel what you may be thinking. Uh, the first kind of parody of unity, I think, is, is, um, is uniformity. Where we, if we could all just, you know, you've heard people say, oh, if the church would just have unity. And what they mean by that is, if we could all sing modern praise choruses. And we, what we mean is we want just uniformity. And if we could all just be the same. But uniformity is not unity. It's a cheap parody 
of unity. Uh, the other parody of, oh, oh, and my favorite form of that, and Matthew, you'll appreciate this, is when somebody says, well, let's just, I know it, let's get everybody together and have a citywide worship night. Now, I like citywide worship nights. They're fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But how many of you know you can go to a citywide worship night with a bunch of other churches and then go back to your old churches and still have arguments with each other? It's like being together and singing a bunch of songs that this church really likes doesn't help. That's not unity. That's nice, but it's not unity. Uniformity is more what that is. Let's all just get together, say the same things, do the same things, sing the same songs. We don't, we don't have to have that. The other kind of parody of unity is, is um, what our culture calls tolerance. You know, well, just, you know, let's just put up with one another and it'll be fine and, you know, just let them be them and let you be you and I'm not going to judge and all this stuff. And, you know, listen, living in unity, making every effort to live in unity doesn't mean you don't have vigorous discussions. Have you paid attention to Paul's life? You read Acts at all? You see how many arguments the dude had? I mean, the guy was feisty. How about the way he wrote to the church in Galatia? Who has bewitched you, you foolish Galatians? Now, Paul, is that really making every effort to keep the unity? <laughs> yes, it is. Because he, they're, they're having this, this great, vigorous discussion. I love that. that. That's comforting to me, that that's part of unity. That's not the opposite of unity. Uh, I think the other cheap parody for unity is silence, that We'll just kind of get along and smile. And this is maybe the, the old um, stereotype of kind of the Midwest thing. You know, like, we'll have our little potluck and I'll bring my, if you bring the green bean casserole, I'll bring the ham roast, you know. And we'll all sit together and then after it's over, we'll get around our tables at home and say, I just don't know what Martha's doing with her kids and she just, da, 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 da. And it's like, you've learned silence. I know, I've been to those small town potlucks a lot in visiting family. And you sit around and you just keep quiet and you smile and it's so wonderful. And then you go back and you're like, mm, did you see what her daughter was wearing? And just, <laughs> so, well, that's not unity either. Silence isn't unity. Tolerance isn't unity. Uniformity and city-wide worship nights are not unity. Unity is when we remember what it is that really connects us. What it is that really binds us. Paul says the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. I don't have time to fully unpack it, though I did this morning at Sunday school when I had 75 minutes to talk. Um, and so we will have a Sunday school podcast on that. But, but I, want, I want you to see this. We focus on the sin problem being the Genesis 3 part of the story. The Genesis 3 part of the story is vertical. It's human rebellion against God. And we think, yeah, that's it. Well, that is it. That's true. That is the sin problem. But what comes right after Genesis 3? Genesis 4, which is the Cain and Abel story. All of a sudden, a vertical sin problem becomes a brother-against-brother hatred problem. And then you fast-forward a few chapters later, and Genesis 11 is the Tower of Babel, which looks like unity. It's a bunch of people who speak the same language trying to do something together, except that they're organizing themselves apart from God. And you can trace the word Babel and Babylon all through the Scripture, and it becomes this picture, this metaphor of human society organizing themselves apart from God. Babel is the Hebrew word for confusion. You could tell what the family of Abraham thought about that. But you guys are confused. That's not unity. That's just confusion. That's not even real. That's confusion. 
There's another story in the Bible where a bunch of people gathered together in unity and started speaking different languages. It's Acts 2. And the unity that happened in Acts 2 is so different than than the Genesis 11 attempt at unity because the Genesis 11 attempt at unity was humans organizing themselves apart from God and maybe even against God, and and, and they all kind of were homogenous. In Acts 2, you see diversity, but you see people who love Jesus, who have come to believe in the risen Christ as their Lord and Savior. And as a result, they, begin, they receive this gift inside of them of the Holy Spirit. And how does it show up in a private, ecstatic experience? It's a shame to me that the charismatic church has made tongues about a private, uh, ecstatic experience. There's certainly something edifying about that, sure. But in Acts 2, it was not a private, ecstatic experience. In Acts 2, when they began to speak, they were speaking in someone else's language. Think about that. That means all of a sudden a dude who grew up over here was speaking in a way that a lady who grew up over there could understand. And all of a sudden it was as if their their ethnic divisions and their national divisions and their linguistic divisions didn't really matter because there was a unity of the spirit that was helping them to speak in a way that you understood and for you to speak in a way that I understood. And it was going back and forth. The kind of unity that is the unity of the Spirit is not where differences disappear, but where we understand that we belong to the same God and the same Father, and we're able by the power of the Holy Spirit to say, wait a second, I think I know where you're coming from, and to stand in someone else's shoes and to walk in someone else's shoes and say it's not a unity of of the same gathering, but it's it's not about just this common sort of gathering. It's about this common identity that we have. All of a sudden, we are one family. Paul says this in Ephesians 3. Ephesians 3, verse 4 through 11. I love this. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. And you're saying, well, spit it out already, Paul. What's the mystery? This mystery is that through the gospel... The Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. He's saying, all of a sudden now, your badge of identity, your core defining identity is not along ethnic lines or national lines. It's along the lines of, do you have faith in Christ? And if you do, then we belong to one another. I've told you this, but I wonder, sorry, let me read on. Skip down, uh, Jeff, to uh, verse 11. Yeah, God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus. I love that. That means the fact that God could take people from various tribes and tongues, the fact that God's people were now not only Israel, but, but, but through Jesus or whoever's in Christ, that he would unite Jew and Gentile together. Why is that significant? Because he's saying, look, this church, the fact that there could be one family that was united together in Christ by their common identity, not common, whatever, common identity, that would be a display to the rulers and authorities in this world. 
That's what confronts the work of the enemy in this world. When you think about a world in Babel, in confusion, trying to figure out unity, and they have their own parodies of it by saying, let's just be tolerant, or let's just do this, let's do that. We, the church, are supposed to say, you know what? We understand how this is supposed to work. Look, look, look how along ethnic lines, look how along national lines, look how from every tribe and tongue there is one family who belongs to Jesus. One. It's remembering that that keeps us being humble, being patient, being gentle, bearing with one another, making every effort. Because this word bond, imagine Paul dictating this Ephesian letter while he himself was chained. Maybe chained to a Roman guard. And Paul's looking at this thinking, now wherever I go, this guy kind of goes. Wherever he goes, I kind of have to go. And, and you begin to realize, you know, that, that's kind of like all of us in Christ because I may not like you very much, but if you tug that way, my arm's going to jerk that way. And if you run this way, that, that what you do affects me and what I do affects you. And there is this bond of peace that binds us. We're bound to each other. And if we're bound to one another, can we make every effort? to preserve this unity. Can we do that? Can we do that? I think what we imagine, though, is that we have little plastic handcuffs, and whenever somebody really irritates us, we can say, well, sorry, that was kind of nice, but, you know. I'm not saying you got to be friends with the same friends your whole life. I'm not saying you got to be part of the same church. I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying think differently. Think about your identity as being corporate and communal and not individual. Think about realizing that these relationships matter. A big part of the reason why we have these groups here at New Life is an attempt to not let this be it. To not let this just be it. Yeah, let's just come, we'll sing, and then we'll leave, and then, okay, see you. Yeah. That's great. That's a start. But to where we can really say, you know what? We're bound together. And I'm hoping that over the next semester, this next 15 weeks in this small group, Maybe this is going to help me be completely humble and gentle and, and patient. And, you know, maybe just, you know. All of a sudden, we begin to grow up. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that through Jesus, you have made one single family for yourself. All of us have a lot of sibling rivalries and feuds and all of that. But help us to not try to run from that, to not choose the safer, easy out of saying, well, I don't want to have to deal with that person or that issue or that this or that that. But help us to, in the midst of these things, all of us can think of relationships and work environments and all of that that, that kind of press on us. Help us in the midst of it, Holy Spirit, to be attentive to you so that you can work in us, so that you can change us, so that we would be children who are growing up in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.